This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to the Power of Murmuration podcast, where we explore modern management and leadership practices, leadership as a state of mind, and co-create a leadership-focused future. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Emilia. And we are both leadership and management partners at Great Ormond Street Hospital. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest, Neil Jurd, a published author who's written the leadership book. I totally recommend it, as do many others. Here is a review from the University of Central Lancashire. Neil Jurd has written a clear, practical and good-humoured guide that will be of great interest and benefit both to existing leaders and to aspiring ones. It's one of many, many brilliant reviews, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you, Neil. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, Emilia. Good morning, Neil, and welcome. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What's your background? I know that you have a military career. I know that you were wounded in, I think, Iraq, wasn't it? So tell, tell us a little bit about yourself, about what made you join the army? I always wanted to join the army. It was almost not even a conscious decision. It was just something I knew I wanted to do. And I joined the army cadet force when I was 12 and I loved it. I made really good friends who I'm still friends with now. I had great experiences. I traveled quite widely. I probably went overseas a lot more because of the cadet force. I did a scholarship entry to Sandhurst. So yeah, I went in, but I never seriously considered doing anything else, actually. If I hadn't got in, I'd have been in trouble. It was new plan B for me back then. So we can see lots of similarities with the NHS, because I think our nurses and our, our doctors also have that calling, that deep calling. What did you enjoy most about the army? The people and the travel. I, I think I... I I mean, again, I've, I've picked up lots of really good friendships as, as I went through my army career. And it's very much a people organization. And that was important to me. Also, the, the places we were, you know, I've, I served in some lovely places, some hard places as well, but some lovely places. I spent a few years in Cyprus. I spent a year in Belize, served in Yemen, actually. And it also opened the doors on other parts of the world. When I was in Cyprus, we went off to Syria and Lebanon, which was safer than this. This is for, for holidays, believe it or not. So yeah, really the sort of the soft side of it, the chance to see, well, see the world, which is an old army recruiting slogan, but it was actually very true for me. I had, I had just had a, a lovely career, a great career. Wonderful experiences, Neil. I'm right there with you. So what were the key drivers to prompt your writing books. You've now developed a huge amount of great following on leadership generally. What prompted you in those early days to start writing? Well, I've always written, but not in a published way, but I've always kept notes. I've always enjoyed preparing notes for clients or even when I was a squadron commander of a Gurkha unit, I wrote a, a one pager about leadership. I think that was the first time I actually wrote my own thoughts on leadership in one place. And I described how I believed it was a combination of sort of the science and the art, the science that, you know, the hard skills, the following process, but then the art, something a bit more, something personal, a bit of spark, creativity, imagination. 
and that theme has followed through for the well into the book that obviously I think we both got a copy of. Yes, the leadership book. I I definitely recommend it. So, uh, go on. Well, I I taught at Sandhurst for a couple of years as well when I was in the army. I was a platoon commander at Sandhurst, so I I saw leadership development done very well at a quite an incredible institution. So yeah, so my interest in it really came from the army and from reading a lot about leadership. But then when I left the army, I was briefly head of logistics at British Sugar. And then again, as I, I think you know, my, my wife died unexpectedly in a crash. So I had to leave that job. My children were really young at the time, two and four. So I ended up with a lot of unexpected space in my life, really, to look after the girls. I kind of left a working career. But then in a very gentle way, I was invited back to speak to groups. A networking organization used me to speak on cruise ships a couple of times just for like these two-day trips that ran out of Southampton. And then I was asked to, to coach people, a couple of universities, HR directors who somehow found me, well, they'd seen me speak on the boats actually, asked me in to, to work with their senior leaders. And it's the, the, the business has really come out of that. And the book probably emerged from the work I did over seven or eight years with leaders in different organizations. I suppose my burning question is, do you think leaders are born or do they learn this skill of leadership? Was there something about you, do you think, that had to be grown or nurtured or taught or what do you think, Neil? You learn leadership. I mean, you probably, you probably do have to be taught. I think decent, kind, compassionate leadership is very personal. It's about being yourself rather than playing a part or playing up to your your rank or position. I think those things are really dangerous. I think anyone can be a pretty effective leader because it's really just down to taking the time to work out what you're trying to achieve and then looking after people, building relationships and connecting the people that you've got the relationships with, with the purpose that you're trying to achieve. Anyone can learn to do that. And actually, most people know how to do it until their rank, status, position turns them into a bit of an idiot and they get it wrong. <laughs> I, I like that, Neil, turns them into a bit of an idiot. I think sometimes rank does get in the way, doesn't it? And that actually organisations, I suppose the army particularly, we get the impression from outside the army that it's the higher-ups speaking always to the lower-downs. But the the rank and file do have quite a lot of input, don't they? Hugely. I think most people's view of the army comes from carry-on films or soldier, soldier or whatever, you know, things, things that you've seen on telly that always involve a lot of shouting. So, Neil, I wanted to ask you, in your long life as a leadership guru, coming from the army, you mentioned uh, British Sugar, What's your strategy for dealing with obstacles, setbacks, the unexpected events that really throw a bit of a curved ball, might get us to lose direction? What are your tips for maintaining your own personal resilience? And, and can you share anything with others who may be in similar difficult circumstances? I'm just aware that we've had COVID. COVID still lingers in the background. There was a lot of grief in the NHS, colleagues dying, lives destroyed. And uh, now we have war in Europe, rampant inflation. We're all frightened to turn on the heating. So what, what's your strategy for overcoming 
life's curved balls. Yeah. I mean, as, as I said, I've obviously been through bereavement, which I realize lots of people have. And uh, as we said offline, COVID, when it first came, hit my business very hard. Kind of lost all of our work over a three or four week period. I don't think I'm an authority on surviving hard things. I, I can only say what it is that, that I've done. And certainly bereavement did hit me extremely hard. But I focused on, gosh, I mean, I, I focused on fitness, actually. I suppose if I, if I was to try and define it as a strategy, which it wasn't, it absolutely wasn't, you know, it's just, it was surviving day by day until mm. it's got better. And I had in my head this idea that today's all bad. Tomorrow's probably all going to be bad, but at some stage there'll be a, a, a little bit of good. And it started to happen, you know, a few, I guess a few months later after bereavement, I, I, I started to have okay. 10 minutes or half hours. And I, I, I remember feeling guilty about that actually, but then with time that became okay, couple of hours and okay mornings and, you know, slowly the light starts to come back into life. But I think certainly that, that took years to really get over, but I, I did two things that I think are probably were part of my survival. And one was looking after myself, which was to do with fitness for me. It was, it was running. It was making sure that I was physically as healthy as I could be, because I think it would be very easy to have got into a, a spiral, but by making myself go for runners or do other exercise and also silly things, but like making sure that, that I shaved every day, which, which might sound absurd, but for me, that was important. It was like a, a small bit of normality that kept me in control of something at a time when it felt like I wasn't in control of, of very much. Then the other thing I did that I think was important for me was I started a charity in Michelle's memory, my late wife's memory, called the Michelle Jewett Trust. And we raised money, it's still going 13 years later, but we raised money for causes which I felt reflected things that she would she believed in. So it was actually developing young people for adventure is a large part of it. And we also give to some military charities. Michelle was a, an RAF officer. She, she flew helicopters. So uh, I gave myself some purpose and looked after myself. And then the other thing, obviously, is I had my children who were, who were two and four and gave me huge purpose. I mean, I, I, I didn't have the option of giving up. I, I didn't have the option of doing nothing. They, they absolutely needed me. So I suppose that's another form of purpose, but also mixed with, with love. It would have been very easy to have sacrificed yourself in supporting your children. But I know that Amelia used to be cabin crew and our mantra always was to look after yourself before looking after others, which I think some people think is selfish, but actually you're no good to others unless you do look after yourself. So I'm so glad that you've reinforced that, Neil. What a, what a, what a story, huge amounts of courage, I think, that's been shown there. Sort of unwelcome courage. If it's, it's, I think I just did what I had to do. And I, I know that there are hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people who have gone or going through something similar and they will face it very differently, I guess, depending on their own life experiences and you know, how they view the world. Neil, it struck me somewhat 
Could you tell us how those, your personal life experiences, if at all, maybe have influenced how you lead and how you develop leaders? I think it changed me. I think any trauma in life changes people. And in my case, I think it, I, I probably understood people better having, I guess, felt the depth of my own emotions and knowing what it is to question everything and feel very personally vulnerable. I think that that put me in a, you know, in time, a, a much better position to coach people and to be totally open to other people's perspectives. I, I guess, I guess I gained a lot of empathy over a period of time, not, not instantly, but probably over several years, I came out of it having really thought about things. And I think that's true of a lot of people who are, who I see, who I respect, who are effective leaders or very good at developing people, they will have been through a bit of a journey. You know, they'll understand what pain feels like and what joy feels like and what love feels like. And if your journey hasn't shown you those things, you're probably going to find it harder to look people in the eye and, and understand what might be scaring them or why they might be holding themselves back or wanting to jump in. Through what happened to me, I gained a better understanding of, of people. Neil, what are your top tips for maintaining resilience in the office environment? I think maybe the first thing I'd say is when I take a setback or a hit, and I guess I'm thinking in the kind of a routine day-to-day -day way rather than huge hits. But where something goes wrong, we tend to react too quickly. And I think the first thing is most things in an office environment, a management environment, and probably in some medical environments, things are not as urgent as they seem. And we tend to get drawn into incidents. I call it drama magnetism, but the idea when something's going a bit wrong, it becomes the absolute focus of usually not just one person's attention, it pulls in other people. I've seen three or four leaders pulled into remarkably trivial issues that could have been solved by the first person who encountered it. I would say that creating time and space is a big part of dealing with things because we make bad decisions under pressure. I remember a few months ago, someone tried to sell us bedroom cupboards and the price was obscene. <laughs> but uh, this guy said, and you know, this is a special offer and I can give you 25% off, which was still obscene, by the way, but I can give you 25% off if you make the decision by Monday morning. And it was just that, that thing of creating artificial time pressure to force a bad decision. So really think about how much time you've got and then try and give yourself some space and some time to calm down. Even in a critical incident, very often the first thing to do is just calm your breathing and get your head straight because it's better to respond well, marginally slower. I also think that your own health and wellness, as far as you can manage them yourself, are really important here. I think if you're eating well, you know, if, you, if you're fueled by good nutrition, if you don't have too much alcohol in your body, if you're not slowed down by drugs use, that really helps you. Getting your own life in as much order as you possibly can 
will allow you to deal with things better. If you're not sleeping well, and if you're, if you're having kind of sugar highs and sugar lows, and struggling with unnecessary fitness issues, issues you could put right for yourself if you focused on them, you will be less effective as a leader because your brain won't work as well and because you'll be fighting your, your body before you deal with the other things which you need to get done. And I think that's a key part of resilience, actually. And it's often overlooked, but it, I think it's, it starts with you as a, as a leader. Very precious insights there, Neil. Thank you. So can you tell us, you've got exciting plans for the future. You've written a book. Again, it's called The Leadership Book, A Step-by-Step -step Guide to Excellent Leadership. What are you doing at the moment? What are your plans for the future? Please do share, Neil. Well, quite a, a lot, actually. I, I recorded a TED Talk last weekend at TEDx Croydon, which has just gone online which seems to be quite popular already is, and it's to do with the importance of people taking a pause, you know, taking a bit of time out, which again, I probably links back to something I would have said if I hadn't been telling my own story, but I think a big part of, of resilience is creating a bit of space for yourself, a bit of time and space to think. And I think people learning to pause in leadership positions or indeed in any busy role, just learning to create a, a gap, to look after yourself, to think things through to get clarity. It's why we need holidays, but it's also why sometimes you have to just shut the door and give yourself half an hour with a cup of tea and no noise and just think things through or go for a walk. So I've done that at TED Talk. I've also got a site called Leader Connect, which I set up about a year and a half ago, which is videos about leadership. 30 of them are by me, but there's, I think, 12 or 13 other people on there now. It's a combination of short videos, about 10 minutes long, and also some great podcast interviews, and that, that's doing well. And then we also run leadership courses. We run residential leadership courses for, for bigger organizations. Sanofi, pharmaceuticals, we, we do University of Sheffield. So they're kind of everything based on the ideas in the book, supported by Leader Connect videos, but really, really engaging eight-day courses. So that, that's what I'm doing. So this morning on LinkedIn, a bit of advertisement here. A lady who I follow absolutely love, Christine Armstrong, she does vlogs and she mentioned in her today's vlogs, Islands of Time. So it really, I, it just flashed in my mind when you were talking about creating that space, Neil. But the other thing that I wanted to comment and maybe take us back just to feed my curiosity and hope you have some listeners back to your military career. In your TEDx Croydon talk, you said something about the need, an absolute need for leaders to create clear direction, but give people as much freedom as possible. And I was thinking about how does that relate to military world and that commandership. So you were a commander and maybe because of the movies that you mentioned before, we kind of, I think, you know, if you're in command, you have a command over everything. But then it makes me think that when thinking about military teams or when you're deployed on a mission, you have a command, you have been given an order, but then somehow those teams are given the autonomy authority to make decisions in the moment. Could you tell us more about it? Could you tell us how it really works and what enables that? Yeah. So, so I think that the, the essence of commanding well is to build really good relationships. Any successful team will be based on really good, close relationships 
and trust, absolute trust in the people you're working with, the people you're working for, and the people who work for you. It's like, it's, it's just a culture, a matrix of trust. And that's so important. The first principle of, of military planning is selection and maintenance of the aim. And in my book, I've, I've adapted that slightly. I, I talk about clear and compelling purpose, but you could call it objective mission, but whatever, whatever you call it, you have to have, and people get wrapped up in terminology. I hope you, you'll have seen in my book, I've tried to really simplify it because I think leadership's simple, but there's so much out there that turns it into some master's or PhD level study that's only for special people. And it isn't any of us can lead. So having this clear sense of where you're going, that's probably the most important single thing that a leader can use their brain for, to work out what it is you're trying to achieve. Then you use these great relationships. And again, in the book, I talk about how to spend your day as a leader. And I think the second or third point I say is just go and have cups of tea with people or, or, or coffee if you prefer, but go just chat with people. If you've got nothing to do, or even if you think you've got something to do, but it's process and routine, the most powerful thing you can do is to go and really get to know people, understand people, know how they feel about stuff and build relationships. Once you've got a process and the military system, it's called mission command. And it's this idea where you've got this very clear objective, but then you build a culture of trust and you give people as much freedom as you can, but within boundaries. Okay. And the boundaries are important. The boundaries will be Things like in your context, there'd be things like finance, you know, how much money can you spend on this, on this project, on this task or timelines, when must this be in operation? So there'll be, there'll be some boundaries, but other than those boundaries, the effective leader gets out of the way. Your role as a leader is to show the way, create the conditions and then get out of the way. But a lot of inexperienced leaders can't do that because they, they don't quite know what to do, but they know that they're being paid a bit more to lead, or maybe the trust isn't there. Their boss doesn't trust them. They're being pressed for information at an unrealistic rate. What's going on? What's going on? Why don't you know? And there's this rather absurd, but again, comes from lack of trust, this feeling that everybody needs to know every detail. That's what leadership's about, but it's not, it's absolutely not. Leadership really, it comes down to delivering the effect. How you do it doesn't matter. It will not be the product of knowing every detail. And it certainly won't be through controlling everything. You might be able to do that. I don't know if you're feeling young and fit and the scope of your leadership isn't huge, but it will overwhelm you. If you've got a busy life, if you've got other stuff distracting you, you will be overwhelmed by trying to control every detail. You'll feel stress. That's what leads to burnout. I think that the fact that computer systems and communication systems give us the ability to be in every loop and controlling every detail, it's really damaging. It's like this, I say in the TED talk, I, I describe it as being seductive and toxic. It's an unwelcome distraction. Actually, know where you're going, gather the people, trust the people, and then let them work towards it. People will feel more valued if they're trusted to get on and do something. They will feel more engaged because 
they're using their own brain to create the plan. A derivative of this is the idea that you tell people what to achieve, but you don't tell them how to achieve it. You tell them what, you also tell them why, so they've got context, but you definitely don't get into the how. And if you're a senior leader and you've got four, five, ten people reporting to you, you can't possibly be in the detail of all of their plans. If you are, you'll be holding things back. You've made yourself a bottleneck by being the decision point in 10 subordinate projects. And you just have to trust that the people will do a good job. If you can't trust them, it's an issue you've got to deal with. That means that you've got to work on the relationship, that you've got to develop people through training. It, it might mean that you've got the wrong people in the wrong jobs, but you as a leader have to have a team of people that you can trust, and then you have to trust them. Because if you don't, you're not really leading, you're just going to be them a busybody. Like, you know, a friend of mine describes it as busy, busy fools. Well, thank you, Neil. That's so enlightening. And just to plug your book, your wonderful book, it's a very small book, but wow, is it powerful, as powerful as Neil talks too. So definitely I would recommend the leadership book by Neil Jurd. And thank you very much, Neil. Thank you for your time, for your energy, for your enthusiasm, and for inspiring and motivating me personally. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Power of Murmuration. As ever, we hope that this sparks your curiosity, encourages you to think differently, and inspires your courage to act. For our next episode, join us in conversation with Mark Coker, the Director of ICT at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Please join us again next month, and goodbye till then. The team at the Gosh Learning Academy would love to get your feedback on the episode as well as suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.